This is AT Conversations. You can listen to the back catalogue at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today, and my guests today are Rab Bennett, who co-founded Bennett's Associates with his partner, Denise Bennett, and was also a founder of the Green Building Council and very much an early adopter in the move towards sustainable architecture. Um, I'm also talking to Hattie Hartman, who is a former colleague of mine and the Architects Journal's sustainability editor, a post that she invented herself. And uh, more pertinently to today's conversation, she's the co-author of a new book, Energy, People, Buildings. Hattie, can you tell us about your book and what it's trying to achieve? Well, this book is about a lot more than energy and buildings. It's really about good design and good architecture and how a thorough understanding of building performance can enhance good design and enable it. I'll say one more thing. I'll say what it's not about because there's so much talk right now about embodied carbon, which is absolutely key to this whole discussion of net zero. Um, Our book is really focusing on operational. We need both. We need whole life carbon and we haven't cracked the operational one yet. Rab, you were very, very quick off the mark in talking about the importance of monitoring operational performance. Um, I am thinking particularly of your Wessex Water Building, which is, what, 20 years old? Um, And I think we all thought you were a little bit crazy when you talked about how much effort was going into this kind of three-year post-occupancy evaluation and endless discussions about who was going to manage it and facilities management. Do you feel that things have moved on in 20 years or do you think you're still a lone voice in the wilderness? <laughs> Very difficult question but I, I think broadly speaking of course things have moved on and the ideas have become mainstream. The ideas behind the building itself which were things like a bit of thermal mass, cross ventilation, low energy techniques and all the rest of it that's, that's certainly caught on and we, on that particular building we also measured for the first time uh, the embodied energy as well, the embodied carbon. So that was over 20 years ago. It was finished in uh, 2000. And last year, well, just before the lockdown, actually, we did a whole office trip back to have a look at it. And we met the same client. They all turned up. It was a fantastic day. And they said how happy they were with the building. But we were able to go around again and see things which had or hadn't worked out. There were very few things that were wrong. Uh, but I did notice things like glare coming through a couple of windows that they put film up for and things like that, where the sun shading hadn't cut out the glare. And I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff because it seems like we have to learn from, well, and the smart thing is to learn from your mistakes, obviously. Hopefully they're not as bad as big mistakes, but you have to learn from them and try to pass them on. So we built in those lessons for all the buildings, well, before that time as well as after that time. And we find it very rewarding. And the buildings do tend to work pretty well and clients do tend to come back with repeat commissions. So it has a purpose. Now, the bit that hasn't worked so well over the years is the, is the actual effort of post-occupancy evaluation. There are lots of barriers in the way of it. It's not done on every building and most architects don't get the chance to do it much uh, because some clients, frankly, are resistant and it, it doesn't go down too well when you're telling people there's a few things that are wrong. So that's been quite a struggle. The actual ideas behind the building have caught on, though. That's pretty much mainstream now. And why hasn't it caught on? Is it because it's an extra cost that clients can't necessarily see the benefit of, do you think? It's it's partly that, but I think it's more of the perception issues. Like if you do 
a study of a building or if some independent consultant does a study of a building and you then start telling the client who's just spent 20 million on a building that, that it doesn't work in some way, you can imagine how that'll go down. And the people who are in charge of the project delivering for the directors or board, they will be feeling really exposed if they have a bit of criticism coming their way. So it's got to be managed extremely carefully. And that includes the words you use and the type of things you find and so on. But we, we keep doing it and we keep finding minor things which we could always improve. It's hardly ever we find something major. So, I mean, for example, Edinburgh University, we had a building done in several phases over 10 years. The first phase, we got some odd feedback about air, fresh air, not quite reaching the far corners of the office type space. It's, it's university space, but it's like an office. Uh, and it was because there were leaks in the underfloor air supply. So for the later phases, we fixed it and did a different system. Now, that was great to have the chance of actually implementing things that we had learned on an earlier job for the same client, and they were fine about it. I suppose so. You, you have the confidence, don't you, of being a very prolific architect and a very respected architect and having repeat work for the same clients, and you can kind of take them with you on a journey. Um, I don't know. I mean, Hattie, you might have a view on this, but, you know, if you're a young practice and you're fighting and fighting and fighting to persuade a client to give you a job, and then you're coming in saying, and it might cost a bit more because we've got to have this really holistic approach to things. And by the way, the project doesn't stop when we hand it over. We've got this kind of ongoing commitment to test it. And by the way, we might make a lot of mistakes and we might need to fess up to that. How, what would, what's the message to them? Well, the thing is, you can avoid problems if you build this into the problem from the, in, into the project from the outset, you know, and, and that's really the key. And we're trying to get away from calling it post-occupancy because it really needs to start all the way from the beginning and Judith Kempion who's my co-author you know her whole message is building this into procurement so that it just has to happen and then it's the contractor's responsibility to make sure all the meters are installed properly and that they can actually measure things and that's and and then you troubleshoot immediately and you solve problems quickly before they turn into big problems and I don't know, Rob, I mean, from from the various projects you've done this, are there places where it's actually changed the design? Some of the things you've learned have changed the design? Well, I think the best example that comes to mind immediately is when, when we did our first energy efficient office building, which was for PowerGen way back in the early 90s. And we had lots of subjects to look at, not just energy. And one of them was the spatial integration of people within the building and how, the, how were they connected to each other because we were, we were trying to change the working culture of, a, of an organization which had been a public sector body and was being privatized. So we, got, we brought in space syntax to do an analysis of the building in the same way that they would normally do something like an, an, an urban neighborhood. And they told us at the outline design stage, uh, you could improve the spatial integration if you switched the circulation from here to here and aligned these things in different ways and all the rest of it. And so we were able to do that after stage C, as it was, outline design. And the stage D design, which is where we're talking 1991 here, um, did put the circulation in different places. It was architecturally quite strong as a scheme anyway. We were not concerned by that. And it really worked. I mean, it was a massive step forward. And... Uh, the feedback we got from people after the building was finished was that you can see everybody, you know everybody, the culture is more coherent. And what they then did was they put the marketing department, which was 
complete anathema to a public sector body. They put the marketing department of the new private body right in the middle. So everybody had to go past them on the way to somewhere else. And the culture started changing when you met people at the coffee machine. They even said people had smiled up a bit. They didn't wear the trainers to the office anymore and stuff like that. So it was, it was a very dramatic effect on the building. I mean, that's a really key thing. It comes through your book, Hattie, is the importance of the kind of human connection and buy-in and of actually the, the, you know, it's not enough to set out good intentions and assume people are going to naturally behave the way you want them to. What are the implications of that for actually the client's role? Do they have to commit to an agenda of kind of training and revisits and all those things? Well, I think, you know, this is all a journey and a process of education. And, and um, you know, one of the projects that one of the case studies in the book is Kensham Town Hall, not, not far from you, Isabel, I think. And, and there, you know, they did a lot of work with uh, the occupants, you know, once the building was occupied so that everyone really understood, uh, you know, how the building worked and when things could open and but there were always unanticipated things like people would leave windows open so it it, the building manager had to go around every Friday to be sure everything was actually closed you know so there there are always unanticipated angles to this. It does raise a question doesn't it about the future of the building manager I mean it's always been the, the unsung hero I've never come across a child who said I want to be a building manager when I grow up or I want to really want a degree in facilities management because I'm super bright at school um, what, I mean there are lots of professions notably lots of things to do with kind of software and computing that always used to be the nerdy kid at school and now we all kind of wish we'd been that nerdy kid is this going to be the profession of the future? Are our brightest students going to go into actually the day-to-day custodianship of our building stock? Well, one of the things that Judith said at our book launch was that, you know, there's more uh, design in an iPhone than there is in many of our buildings in terms of how to operate things intuitively and in a user-friendly way. And, you know, we need to get to that. I mean, I don't know what your view is, Rob, with things coming increasingly you know, smart and, 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 and high tech, you know, is that the answer? Is that the way forward? Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a concern because I think if it becomes very complex, it becomes a failure before too long because people don't end up passing on the skills to the next guy who gets a promotion to that job. And so you lose a lot of the feedback. So if it is intuitive in the, in the way the Apple phone is, or perhaps a naturally ventilation naturally ventilated building is intuitive you you get a sense that people know how to operate these things so the more complexity you build in the more likely it is not to work in the long run so i get a bit concerned when uh, some of the engineers on jobs they put forward building management systems that cost half or three quarters of a million and you think what on earth is this for the first job i ever did with a building management system way back in the arab days in 1981 i suppose it was 25 grand and somehow it's morphed into some gigantically sophisticated piece of kit which nobody knows how to operate unless you've been on a one-year course or something like that. This is 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. So there are errors in sophistication which are better avoided by just doing the simple intuitive thing and it goes through with things like temperatures and in the office people know when they're warm so they open the window and so they there's a bit of give and take with naturally ventilated types of buildings that you don't get with a highly controlled building 
And so people are intolerant. They ring up the plant room and demand cooling when it's a warm day, whereas you don't do that with a place where you can open the windows. So there's a kind of intuition that we need to build back into the operator of buildings, I think. I mean, how far is it acceptable to say that, do you know what, the facilities manager should actually, first of all, say, why don't you wear another jumper to work? Or, you know, how much do you think it's reasonable to assume that culturally we can just change our behaviour a little bit to allow our buildings to be as simple as possible? I've always argued that. I mean, it's um, behaviour change is now a really big topic as to how on earth we're going to re- meet zero carbon. But in the days when it was just a low energy building we were talking about, we did say a number of times, take your tie off, don't wear a jumper in the summer, for heaven's sake. You know, you go into these super air-conditioned offices, sometimes not in UK, I have to say, but you freeze and I get a chill. What's the point of that? So adaptive comfort is what this is called. And in every single one of our case studies, you know, that was part of part of the part of the picture. You know, one of the buildings we looked at is is in um, near Aspen, Colorado. So in a super cold climate, they actually have chairs that are individually heated. So you could, you know, you don't have to necessarily heat the whole volume of the space, but you can top up your own personal space. And at AHMM, um, in their own offices, you know, near Old Street, they looked at also adaptive comfort and no cooling in the you know in the workspaces and they ended up with a few hot days passing out ice cream to everybody because that was one way to uh, you know kind of make people feel a little better even though it was quite quite hot but you know it gets it's hot outside wear a t-shirt and and it's I, I mean it's something lovely about those rhythms aren't there? I mean I did my um, year out in Singapore. And actually, frankly, the reason I came home was I just couldn't bear the thing of wearing the same outfit year in, year out. You know, they, they went to great lengths to keep the temperature. Everything's air conditioned. Everything's constant. You know, it's like, well, when's my kind of chunky boot, chunky boot, big coat moment? And when's my little summer dress moment? And, you know, I found it absolutely soul destroying. So, I mean, I think, you know, I love the idea that it's kind of ice lollies in summer. And you like to think if, you know, HMM are very successful, aren't they? I'm sure they could run to buying a nice woolly jumper for all their staff. I mean, getting back to the example of Wessex Water, which you touched on earlier on, uh, it has, along with several low energy buildings we've done, an exposed massive structure which gets chilled at night by purging at nighttime and hot summer days and so on. So it cools down and you get some benefit of free cooling the next day. Now, the building manager, when he started out, was using this night purging device all the time in the spring right through to the autumn. He wasn't doing it in the winter. So people were coming in in the morning in a July day and sometimes feeling cold and put the heating on. So that's one of the lessons. You don't have to do this night purging when it's not baking hot. And you have to learn to drive this thing a bit like driving a new type of car and it, it sounds so obvious, doesn't it? But actually, you know, m- most of us are just not equipped psychologically to think we can control our buildings. You take them as given. And, you know, my kids drive me crazy because they're sort of, you know, I'm suddenly roasting and they say, are we cold? We put the heating up. And you're like, well, yeah, why did you? I'm sorry to sound like a quintessential mum, but why did you not just put a jumper on? And I think, you know, that that process of actually basic education to the populace of how buildings work and that they take a responsibility starts at a very very young age doesn't it it starts in school or it should do um so I suppose I want to put that to both of you because I, I know you've both been involved in education in different ways or talking to students certainly and um obviously the younger generation are much more kind of canny about climate change and about the implications at a very sort of academic technical level. 
how do we actually change education? A, so that people are more willing to take on responsibility for the way they live in their buildings. And B, so that we get this thing that both of you talk about all the time, which is proper, proper joined up thinking between different disciplines. Who first, Hattie? That is really a topic close to my heart. And, you know, the good thing is, I think it's it's now risen to the top of the agenda. You know, I've written about this in the AJ probably eight years ago. And the only, or maybe 10 years ago, the only place that was doing anything, you know, where things were really happening was at the Center for Alternative Technology. And and now there's such a thirst. And, you know, the ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, they've just launched STUCAN, the Students Climate Action Network. And um, I think there's something like 12 student groups across the UK. I mean, it's it's really happening. And, and they're dissecting the curriculum and looking at you know, how many modules deal with this and how many uh, design studios have this written into the brief to, to be addressing these issues. So it is going to happen. The challenge is that we can't really wait for that generation to, to you know, another 20 years be leading the profession to, to solve these issues. I think getting building performance, some basic understanding of it into, into education is, is also really important. And you look at the people... Um, who are leading this now, you know, someone like Claire Murray at Levitt Bernstein, she, she studied with Fionn Stevenson, you know, and some of Sophie Pelsmaker's students already out doing things now. I mean, there is a clear, you know, clear path to, you know, being exposed to these issues as part of your architectural education. But Rob, I'm sure you have more eloquent well, thoughts I'm on not, this. I'm not nearly as involved in education as probably I should be, but i one thing that does concern me is that there's, there's no doubt there's a demand from students to know better how to um, help the climate and the planet and all the rest of it. No question about that. But the teaching staff are quite often per- permanent full-time staff, and we don't have the same involvement through practitioners as we once had because budgets have made that almost impossible in some of the colleges. So the, the older teaching staff haven't got very recent experience of how to make uh, climate benign buildings that are more responsive to the kind of things we've been talking about. Now, I'll probably get shot down in flames for saying it's saying a thing like that because there are probably quite a lot of people in colleges who do that. So it's a gross generalization, but I would say that if the colleges could get practical uh, experience from practitioners and others into the college for lectures or talks or pipe time tutorials or something, that would help. But I think there's also still this, uh, you know, the sort of philosophical approach, which in a way puts kind of style and aesthetics and form as as the primary function certainly at the kind of student stage in a way that seems most damaging of all because you know I think if you think about the conversation we're happening today one of the key things is that actually specification and procurement and a proper understanding of the nuts and bolts of how a building goes together and how it performs has to be the first thing now if you can make something that's beautiful out of that kit of parts or that set of performance targets whatever it is that's a plus but actually you know starting with something amazing and an idea and then kind of however many months down the line thinking what do we make it from we've got to attack that now haven't we I want to come back to something you touched on a minute ago which is the more interdisciplinary approach to teaching and I would say you know in these years of writing about this for the AJ I've I've really I've been to so many events and one of the most fantastic events, I think you were there, Rob, I think we were actually seated at the same table, was um, uh, at the University of Bath. And it was, 
I think the 25th anniversary or something of Ted Heppel's being there. There were, it was some occasion, and but it was all about interdisciplinary teaching. And all the people who spoke are leading this agenda today. There was Patrick Bellew, there was, there was you, Rob, there was um, uh, Peter Clegg, I think, and Keith Bradley. I mean, they, all of them had been educated with this, you know, coming at it from both angles, both engineering and architecture. You're listening to AT Conversations. The back catalogue is available at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Taught in the same studios, the engineers had to read Bannister Fletcher. I don't know exactly what the architects had to do, more calculations than they would normally have to do, I suppose. Um, But, you know, now this is what we need. We need all these disciplines around the table. But you need them also around the table with with the manufacturers and the product suppliers and, you know, the people making the various systems around our buildings. So that's that seems almost like a bigger leap, actually, because there is a sort of old fashioned professional elitism that it seems it seems absolutely conceivable that the world is going to move towards joint architecture and engineering degrees or even maybe joint landscape architecture and engineering degrees or whatever it would be. But there is a kind of cultural divide between the people who actually develop and make the stuff we build from and the people who specify it. Well, indeed, I think I think architects historically, this, again, there's another gross generalisation, but architects historically have seen themselves as a profession apart. And it's the, the world of architecture is often accused of being elitist and remote and not part of the industry and all the rest of it. And I was fascinated by building things and engineering. So I joined Arab when I left college because I was... I was really intrigued by it all. And I find it was part of this industry, which I hadn't properly discovered at that stage. And that business about contractors and product makers and all the rest of it, they're not the enemy, which is what you're brought up to think as the architect, actually. They're the same as us. And they have the same kind of objectives. They're just as interesting. And you have to collaborate on a massive scale. So what I'm finding now, for example, in this day and age of horrendous fee bids and all the rest of it. You talk to a contractor, they're thinking exactly the same things as we are. They're in exactly the same bind. They want to do sustainability just like we do, and you have to do it together. So if I was to put out an appeal to the profession in any one in one sense, I'd say just make sure you're part of the industry as a whole, not a profession with a capital A at the beginning of it. It's You're not remote. You're part of a huge, two and a half million people. So why not think of yourselves as being in some kind of leader, leadership position in that great industry instead of being a remote profession. Which, which brings us back, doesn't it, to the question of, of communication. And um, I mean, I've got to say, Hattie, kudos to you for, for using your position <laughs> at the Architects Journal to really kind of establish yourself as a, a, someone who joins up the dots and kind of links all sorts of different ideas. Um, and I, I enjoyed your book mostly because, to be honest, it's one of the very few intelligent books on environmental architecture that I've been able to understand because it was written very clearly and I have very limited attention span. <laughs> I mean, Judith is incredibly knowledgeable and this is a very technical subject she, and she knows everything that goes wrong with buildings inside out. And to figure out how to package that, you know, when I look at it now, we've got these 10 chapters and we have one about... Um, fabric and and one about systems and but it took us you know to get to that kind of clarity of structure it it, it, it was not obvious I, I, you know having edited an awful lot of technical articles in my time I can absolutely see the work that went into that looking and not then obvious. we were very lucky because Sophie rounded up one of her students to do those lovely diagrams 
uh, which translate a lot of these kind of process concepts into visuals that, you know, make yeah. it a lot easier to digest. So, so I think, you know, this uh, clarifying the issues and, and talking about them in a way that's engaging is, is so important. How, how do we get it into one big conversation though? I think, you know, it's great that ACAN are there. I think they're absolutely amazing. Uh, it's fantastic architects to Claire exists, Green Building Council, of course, is credible, but we could go on and on, couldn't we? There's all sorts of acronyms uh, for people who've got incredible energy and are doing amazing work. Uh, but how, how do we actually get any degree of coherence on that and stop it just being too many voices and too many different conversations? It, it's certainly one of the problems we've got is there are far too many disparate groups and they're not talking to each other. And the amount of duplicate work that's going on is absurd. And it's partly the way research projects are funded, that people have rather territorial views about their project. They don't want to give it up when they find somebody else is doing it and so on and so forth. But putting that all to one side, I think the route to coherence is just better architecture. If you, The thing that's attracted me to this agenda all along the idea that it actually produces a richer form of architecture that people might actually enjoy better than the alternative. So now we find we have plenty of examples of energy efficient or low carbon buildings which are good architecture. We have existing buildings refurbished which look great and they start to make the architect do improvise, improvisations and other things which you wouldn't get in a new building. That's also interesting. So the, the message that is going to drive everybody in that direction is actually through the quality of the work. Which I, I think totally is, agree with and that's where the public will play a part because if they like the buildings and the clients are commissioning the buildings and they also do all this stuff for the planet, that's actually where we want to be. We don't, we don't want to do lousy buildings; we want to do good ones. And I think, I mean, that's really noticeable, isn't it, Hattie? Looking at your case studies, they're all great buildings that are really interesting. Exactly. And, and exactly. I mean, you know, part of the reason I, I got such a long history uh, with Rab, I don't mean that in a weird way, um, was frankly, you know, it was, an, it was a gift because we kind of, oh God, we want to do stuff on sustainability, but look at all these ugly buildings. And actually Rab would have buildings that were beautiful and interesting and talk about it, but it was quite rare back then, you know. So. It was very rare. I mean, you know, for so long, I felt like I was talking to a wall and it's just, I'm actually feeling very optimistic at this moment. You know, there are all these disparate groups. And I, I remember I went along to the first ACAN meeting um, and it was a dark, no, wet November night. It was in a you know dark pub in, in Dalston. And I was like, what am I doing here? And they had so much energy. And you know, I was like, why do we need yet one more group? We've got architects there. We've got this, we've got that. And the good thing is, I think they are talking to each other now. And with the momentum of COP26, if it actually happens, you know, people are really pushing towards this buildings and city and built environment day. And, and you know, it's not about what actually happens there, but all the fringe stuff that's happening as people are, are headed towards that. I think there is a, you know, there's, it's move, all moving in the right direction. We need good examples on the ground of beautiful buildings that people want to be in. You know, I mean, that's, I, I agree with Rab 100% on that. Um, but I wanted to ask one other question, you know, back to this performance issue. You know, everyone is turning to Passive House now saying that's the way to ensure a building's going to work. Uh, I, I'm wondering, Rob, what your take is on that, because, you know, to get certified Passive House, you do have to monitor for one year. So it does ensure that you've at least looked if a building is working or not. But 
What's your take on that? Well, I, I, I'm very exposed on the detail of passive house. I haven't done the course, and I know there's a couple of people in the firm who are doing it at the moment. Um, and I think we have to be completely honest and objective about it and question it just like any other system. And anecdotally, I've heard there's some issues with not enough air supply in houses and stuff like that. But honestly, I think you have to take it on its merits and see how it goes. In Scotland, where I'm based most of the time now, there's a particular issue about colder climate, condensation, air getting trapped in old buildings, and then the problem getting worse. So we have a much bigger problem to solve with the existing building stock than anything we might do new. And I'm much more fixated at the moment as to how do you insulate a block of tenements, for example, which a stair with eight flats. How do you then get them all weaned off boilers? How do you do air heat pumps and so on? So really, really good stuff. But the new build, it's not my scene at the, at the residential end of the spectrum. I'm leaving it to others because I don't, I haven't done the course and I'm not so knowledgeable about it. I think uh, one of the things that came through from your book, Hattie, was that um, the Passive House projects had a much better record at actually predicting the building performance, didn't they, than the other ones. Um, I don't know whether that actually means it's better or it just means that once people have gone through all those hoops, <laughs> they've actually focused on a more realistic set of tools to make their predictions. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, it does force you to go through the through those hoops, and it it forces you know. When I studied architecture, climatic bioclimatic design was just like part of the design studio. You had to understand orientation, and I mean that was just basic. But I think with parametric design and you know everything, that whole message got lost, and now it's come back, which is which is really you know essential. But um, you know whether you have to. I mean, you do have to understand how much glazing to put on which facade and, and, and passive house planning package forces you to, to make those trade-offs. Um, there are other ways to do it as a good designer, as we know. Yeah. And, and I'm going to ask one last question, which is this issue of the, uh, the performance gap. <laughs> Um, I, I, I know there's a staggering, staggering discrepancy between our predictions and how buildings perform, but, but, but to be honest, there's a staggering discrepancy between what we predict our buildings are going to cost and how, what they cost and how long we think they're going to build and what they build. So I, I'm wondering if that says more about human nature and our capacity to be optimists than about any failure of, uh, of our buildings. Because of our attitude as being part of a building industry, we have generally had a really good track record of meeting budgets. We don't tend to find our buildings go over cost, and it's a matter of something similar to the size of the building. Um, in the case of the performance gap, the, one of the most important things is to make sure we're comparing like for like. So you end up with estimates of a building performance, which are based on building regulations, and final outturn, which is based on building regulations plus a load of other stuff as well. So it's no, it's no surprise. There's an enormous gap between those two. So you've got to compare like for like before you really know what you're doing. And on the Wessex Water job, getting back to that favourite, where we did have monitoring rules and so on, we found comparing like with like, it was underperforming by about 30%, which is quite interesting because it was a well-designed building, though I say so myself, it was well-built by a very good contractor, Mace, and yet we still find found it was using 30% more energy than it probably should. So we spent the monitoring time finding out what it was that was making this 
disparity, the performance gap. And it was things like there were a few leaks in the cutting because it wasn't pressure tested in those days. There were some issues in the kitchen. There was the way people were using the controls for electrical supply, computer management, all that kind of stuff. And we fixed all those and got it down to a comparable number. Near as down. It took about a year to two years to do that with fine tuning. But of course, the cost of the post occupancy work was more than by the 30% leaving on four mm. It was, and so it's a fair bet, therefore, if you took every new building in the country plus a lot of the existing buildings and did the same kind of assessment on them, you could save, let's say, 30% right away. And that would make our carbon targets much more easy over the next decade or two. So is it at all plausible that in the way that we have 106 payments or the community infrastructure charge or whatever it is, is it plausible that there could be a public sector fund which would pay for post-occupancy evaluation so that that could be written into briefs without actually loading up the client with anything they're not expecting to pay for? I, I think we're focusing too much on the new buildings because I think, in a way, the new buildings have clients and they have budgets and they have funding streams and all the rest of it. And it's Whereas such an infinitesimal percentage. It, it, it's, of, tiny, yeah, yeah. it's tiny. Whereas the really big prize here is the existing building stock. And most householders or people who own hotels or office blocks or whatever, they won't necessarily have the wherewithal to do a post-occupancy study of an existing building. But that's perhaps where we should start because of the the huge savings that can be made. If you take, again, my favourite example, the tenement block with eight flats off of stairs, the disparity between different occupancy patterns is huge. And it could be because of leaking windows or other things that people are doing in the flats. And so if, if the energy companies took a role in that, advising people that they're using much more energy than perhaps a comparable property, mm. then it could start rolling out a programme of sensible refurbs. Uh, Rab, Hattie, thank you so much for joining us. Hattie, congratulations on your book. Where can everybody buy it? Thank you, Isabel. So lovely to be here. RIBA Books. And I've read it. It's great. Thank you very much. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.